Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. Um, we are joined by Frank Everett, who's the vice chairman of Jewels in the Americas for Sotheby's. Um, Frank, thank you so much for joining the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, Danny. It's really, really nice to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So before we get into our, our topics, can you just give us a, a quick intro? Obviously, everybody knows Sotheby's. You don't have to introduce Sotheby's, but tell us about what 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 your role at Sotheby's is and what your background is. Um, you know, just a quick intro. I'd be happy to. Um, so my title here is Vice Chairman for Jewels of the Americas. And uh, I've been with Sotheby's for 10 years now. And I oversee a lot of different aspects of the jewelry auction world here, as well as I do uh, selling exhibitions um, as kind of a side hustle. <laughs> so I do. I'm, in, <laughs> I'm involved in, uh, of course, sales, marketing. I uh, work with lots of private clients. I assist on catalog and exhibition design, editorial stuff. I shoot a, a series of videos called Frank's Files, which is a lot of fun. And I highlight all the jewels here. Um, active on Instagram, and I came to Sotheby's from a long career in retail jewelry. So before this, I worked first at Bulgari, then Tiffany and & Company, and then Harry Winston. And because of your expertise and in keeping with the theme, um, we're going to talk about some jewelry stuff today. I'm going to try to keep some of our, our discussion in the 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 realm of jewelry, high-end luxury, all the stuff that you guys specialize in. Um, really, again, thank you so much for being here. I, I love doing this podcast with my regular co-host, but it's very fun to have um, some guest hosts on, uh, like I said, for an outside perspective. But um, today we're going to start by talking about um, Chanel's new tweed-themed jewelry collection, and we'll get into a little bit of Chanel's ambitions around high-end jewelry. Um, we'll discuss the widening gap between true luxury shoppers and then aspirational shoppers and how that's uh, playing out in the American market. And then finally, we're going to talk about Frank Sotheby's big uh, Magnificent Jewels sale that just happened earlier this month, um, which I believe several records were set for jewelry sales at this event. So we'll, we'll get to that last. But um, to start, like I said, so Chanel debuted a new collection of high-end jewelry this week, and it was all themed around tweed, which I thought was really interesting. That's a, a material that's been a part of Chanel's identity for decades, so they kind of recreated a tweed texture in jewels, which is very cool. I think they've done something like that uh, or planned to do something like that once before, but it was right around pandemic time. I don't know if that actually ever sold, but so this is like kind of their first big you know, tweed collection um, in jewelry. It's definitely seemed geared towards a very high-end shopper. There's a lot of one-of-a-kind pieces. Um, obviously, Chanel is already a you know super high-end brand, but I tend to think of them as when when I think of Chanel, I think of handbags and fashion and stuff like that. Um, Frank, what's your sense of Chanel in the jewelry space compared to you know somewhat like Tiffany and and other brands that are more known for jewelry? Well, I love Chanel jewelry, and I had the pleasure last year of seeing the 1932 collection in person in Paris, which was astounding. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I wish I could have seen these these new um, tweed pieces. You know, Chanel is obviously known for reinventing the tweed again and again and again, and they own that they own that textile really. Like whenever you mm -hmm. see other designers using it, it's automatically that's very Chanel. So um, yeah. when you look at the history of, of tweed in the house, it makes perfect sense for them to use this as a design motif. But mm -hmm. they are, the, the, the team there, um, uh, Patrice, the gentleman who is the, yeah. the chief designer there, is just a master at weaving the motifs that were important to Chanel herself, you know, over 100 years ago. So I think this is quite amazing. Uh, I also love 
the fact that many designers in the past have used different aspects of fashion in jewelry design. You know, so there are mm-hmm. great designs sort of that look like lace, things that look like tapestry, mm-hmm. bows, um, the zip necklace of Van Cleef and Arpels. You know, fabric is, you know, no pun intended, interwoven with, mm-hmm. with this notion of design. So I think it makes perfect sense. I think it's fabulous and I love what they do. Uh, I yeah. really, I'm, again, I'm sorry I'm not there this, this time around to see what I saw last year because I had a beautiful tour of their um, exhibition last time with, with high jewelry. Yeah, and and you're right. As a as a design motif, um, I think it's a little bit of a uh, almost a showing off the craftsmanship of being able to, you know, make something out of hard material look and feel, and and you know, take on the properties of fabric. Um, you know, it's that to me seems like an engineering and uh, you know design feat to be able to do that. It is, and we we use the word constantly when we talk about the make of a jewel. You know, this is what this is mm-hmm. kind of the, the the way it's made. When you say something is beautifully made in in the department, we just say great make on that bracelet or great make. And we often say fabric. We use the word fabric to say, my God, it's like a bracelet is so f- supple. Um, and mm-hmm. a lot of those techniques are are dying, like like the fashion techniques, right? Like beading and mm-hmm. lace making and things like that. So, um, for instance, last week in our auction, we had a, just a little pair of Van Cleef Art Deco earrings. And the make on these, they really were like fabric. They were just kind of a diamond mm-hmm. fringe earring. And you just could not believe the movement and the swing on these little tassels. And um, th- this it very is very closely related to fashion. And I think with Chanel in particular, they, they cross the line of really being a fashion accessory. So great jewels, the great pieces that we sell, sometimes they're highly collectible and sometimes they're works of art and sometimes they're really just a fashion accessory. Sometimes they check all three boxes. But um, ultimately, a piece of jewelry does have to be worn, right, to be enjoyed yep. with the look, with an outfit. And so you can't really separate it from its role as fashion accessory, no matter how important the gemstones are or important the design of the provenance are. So I love it. I think it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And and what do you think of brands like Chanel that do um, fashion, that they, they do leather goods and, and textile stuff, and in addition to jewelry, compared to like Van Cleef and Arpel or Tiffany, who, who just do jewelry? Like, does a, a brand like Chanel kind of, can they if they push up into those one-of-a-kind, super high-end pieces, can they kind of play in the same space or is it still a little bit like, you know, a, a specifically jewelry-focused high-end brand is is a little bit apart? There is a slight difference, I will say. Now, a brand like Chanel, uh, being the, the global powerhouse that it is and also being Parisian, you know, the greatest jewelry is all made in Paris. So that's that they've got to jump on things there. And the history of the house obviously says that they're going to make the finest quality, as fine a quality jewelry as Cartier or Van Cleef and Arpels or Tiffany or anybody else. Yeah, there are some brands maybe that tiptoe into it, not quite um, prepared for what it takes to create a collection and, and what it takes to market a collection and to find the right clientele. You really, really need clients that are devoted to the house, um, whether yeah. it's, you know, Gucci or Fendi or Hermes to, to invest in a piece of high jewelry from that house, if that makes sense. I think Chanel mm-hmm. transcends a little bit. I think their high jewelry is yeah. quite well-respected and beautifully made. And um, uh, yeah, so I think, th- does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, that 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 perfectly answers the question. I, I, I was thinking, I, I know a little bit more about watches than jewelry, and I feel like there's 
brands, you know, like Gucci makes great watches. They make really nice watches. But if you are like a watch person, a serious, serious watch person, you're probably a little more interested in like Audemars Piguet or something more than Gucci, even though they make great stuff and it's it's no knock against Gucci. It's just, if you're a specialist in this space, you might go for the the other brands. But I think you're right that Chanel is really like at the tippy top and and definitely I think is probably the best position to, to kind of cross over. That said um, though, you know, you look at a brand like Dolce & Gabbana and they do beautiful high jewelry collections, very niche, very small. I think they sell them all out to their top clients and do very well with it. Um, it's a small segment of their business, but I think a, a successful one. Um, and that absolutely is just about um, loyalty to the brand. Yeah. And so this kind of um, segues nicely into our, our second topic. I wanted to talk to you about, um, there was a report in Reuters recently um, this week about the kind of growing split between people who are, you know, true luxury shoppers who can can afford and regularly buy, you know, the the highest end products, and then the aspirational shopper who um, kind of stretches a little bit to get to, you know, to be able to afford some of these products. Um, some of the data they cited to support this included, um, I think, some earnings from Signet, uh, the company that owns like K and Zales. They said that they're seeing a decline in sales of products below five thousand dollars and an increase in sales of products above five thousand um, dollars. Similar thing with Macy's, which owns Bloomingdale's. They had, you know, Macy's customers are spending less, but their Bloomingdale's customers are spending more. There's definitely, I think, a sense that luxury is doing really well, the highest end. Um, and, you know, I always think of Chanel as a brand that they raise their prices all the time and there's like seemingly no limit of what the loyal Chanel customer will will pay for it. Um, are you seeing uh, any similar kind of trend there at Sotheby's in terms of like the highest, highest end stuff is just still growing? There's no slowdown at all. And then maybe on the lower end, there's less interest? Or wh what's your perspective on that? Well, I had a lot of thoughts there. And it's interesting because auction is a little bit different than retail. I did spend yeah. um, the first half of my career in retail. So I worked for Bulgari for years, Tiffany & Company for years, and Harry Winston. So I know that, that field quite well. We yeah. don't set the prices here. The market determines mm -hmm. the price of an auction piece. Yeah. Um, however... We have, over the last several, year, several years, really uh, moved towards a more aspirational client in that we've created what we call fine jewel sales, mostly sold online, sometimes in a live auction setting, with much lower price points. So we're still talking about fine jewelry, real materials, 18 karat gold, diamonds, and great value. But we're targeting that aspirational customer. For us, that's more um, you know, the article that you're referring to refers to the aspirational customer in the 300 to $800 range. We don't mm -hmm. quite start there, but at, yeah. we, we, we have wanted people to, to see us as accessible and, um, mm -hmm. and not intimidating. So I think we do yeah. start price points online often in the 1500 to $2,000 range, and you can still get amazing pieces of jewelry here under 5000 So I think we, we've recently built that clientele. So I would say the opposite is true for us. We're not really losing that aspirational mm -hmm. client. We're actually building um, a bigger base of that client. Certainly inflation, food prices, and you know, I live in New York City, taxis are double what they were two years ago. I mean, there's a lot mm -hmm. of issues um, right now that are causing many people to have less disposable income. But I do think jewelry always holds up well because the intrinsic value of the materials is always going to be there. You know, so mm -hmm. when you, you sort of you feel like it's a splurge and it is shopping, 
but it's also collecting in in some small way, even even at a lower price point, it's still investing in an asset. You know, if you buy yourself yeah. a gold bracelet and you enjoy it for five years, I can promise you, you're going to get your money back from that bracelet. So it's um, as opposed to other areas of fashion, which might not be as um, they might not hold their value quite as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and and thinking of it as an asset, I think is definitely a, a defining, uh, you know, feature of a lot of modern luxury. I mean, obviously, collectors have always bought and resold watches or fine jewelry or art or whatever. That's that's not new necessarily, but I definitely think there's a wider array of both customers and products who are thinking about the fact that this might be a lot of money up front, but I know that I can get a, a chunk of it back or even the full value back or even more of it back in a, a year or two. You know, that seems... Often you do get more. Um, that's mm-hmm. the, one of the greatest things of auction is that um, b- b- most of our property that we sell is rare. Um, if it's mm-hmm. a vintage piece and it's a one of a kind, maybe you could find another one if you wait. You know, we use that phrase all the time when somebody loves a piece. It's, well, you, you might not see another one. Find another one. It might take five years. Um, as opposed to a retail setting where especially core product, you know, those lines are available all the time. So if you're looking for, I don't know, a, a, a Tiffany, you know, tea bangle, which I happen to like that bracelet a lot, but you don't have to buy it today. Um, you can think about it and buy it next month or next year. But some of the pieces that come along at auction, you do have to get them at the moment. If it's something that you're passionate about and you really want that to be your signature piece, you want to add it to your collection, it's not kind of now or never sometimes. So that adds to the um, the value of auction, I think. Something we've talked about on this podcast before is uh, because there's uh, you know a lot of interest in high-end luxury, something I've noticed is some brands uh, that are maybe not traditionally in this space, kind of like, sort of like we were talking about with, you know, Chanel pushing up into high jewelry is um, brands that are not even close to Chanel's price point, also kind of trying to push up or offer a couple things for that higher end consumer. Um, we've brought it up on this podcast, but there's a brand called Frame that's denim, but they recently sold a very limited uh, collection of jeans that had Swarovski crystals embedded in it, and they sold for like $11,000 and their normal pair of jeans is like a couple hundred. Um, it's a, it was a huge jump for them. And it definitely felt like it was because there's this, you know, that customer is, is who can afford that is there and, and is still spending, even if others are maybe not. Um, do you guys see stuff like that coming through Sotheby's much like a brand that maybe isn't traditionally a Sotheby's brand, but has like one or two products or some super limited, you know, collab they did or something they did that kind of like can put them in that space? I would say not yet. We will maybe start seeing those things. You know, there's most property that we sell, not just jewelry, watches, all kinds. There's a generation, there's a life that something has to have before it comes to auction. Mm -hmm. So we don't see much jewelry here that's less than 25 years old. That's just the way it works. That's the length of time that a a collector is going to enjoy the piece before they either trade it in for something else or they just stop buying or whatever whatever the reason is for selling. Um, but I think it's a fascinating point because what it does is really highlight the value of rarity. Um, even if you look at H&M and their capsule collections, right, and you go back to like um, Albert Albaz or Karl Lagerfeld or even Isaac Mizrahi for Target, those things are still kind of collectible. It's just about rarity, right? It's not necessarily mm-hmm. about the quality. They may they may maybe have made things the same quality, but because they only made a few and they were only available for a very short time, that's a cool thing. 
So I think mm -hmm. that's what those brands are doing. If they're going to make a limited number, it's really for brand awareness and elevating, um, elevating their brand to some special place. Yeah, and and I know from talking to I think it was Josh Pullen at at Sotheby's about sneakers that um, the the provenance of the the item is a big part of it. You know, like was this worn by an, a specific athlete or was did this piece play some part in history? You know, and and I could see you know that happening for jewels too. Was this worn on Oscar night by some specific celebrity or something? You know, something like that could also elevate something up into your guys' world. Is, is that right? Yeah, provenance um, is is a very important aspect of the value and can really boost the price depending on the timing and the piece and when it was worn and the woman who wore it or the man. You know, we just sold uh, two of Paul Newman's personal watches, um, yes, Rolexes. I heard about that. They each brought well over a million dollars, and one was a gift from Rolex and the other was a gift from his wife, and she had engraved on the back, you know, drive very slowly because he was a race car driver, and this was a mm. a, a gift that she gave him. So. The that provenance, you, you kind of can't get much better than Paul Newman and a Rolex, right? They just yeah. sort of go together. And uh, we've seen over the years sales from, from the great women of style of the past, whether it was the Duchess of Windsor or Jacqueline Kennedy, um, really will boost the the value of a piece because you think you're going to get a little bit of that, that shine from that person. A little bit of their style will become part of yours. And um, some of the great tastemakers, like a Bunny Melon, um, mm -hmm. re really, people were buying just table linens for huge prices, spending thousands yeah. of dollars on linen napkins and things just because they wanted a little piece of that style in their in their own world. And um, provenances can be can be very very valuable. Yeah. And speaking of that, um, the last thing I want to ask you about some news from you guys. So you had the mag it's an annual thing, right? The Magnificent Jewel Sale. It's actually um, twice a year in New York. We do one okay. in June and then we do it again in the beginning of December. So two a year. Got it. And so you just had your June one. Um, I've alluded to this earlier, but I know several records were set. Um, uh, some very cool jewels were, you know, came through the, the auction block. Um, tell me about it. What 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 did you guys sell? What were some of the records that broke? How did it all go? It was it was a great week. Um, I'm not sure if you got a chance to come see the exhibitions. If you didn't, mm -hmm. um, I'll make sure you come in December because it's really a special time here where we bring all the luxury, what we call the luxury categories, um, and present them at one time. Jewelry, watches, sneakers, handbags, whiskey and wine. Um, it's really, uh, it was a fabulous presentation. And then we also had some highlights here from London of Freddie Mercury's estate, which we'll be selling in London in the fall. So mm -hmm. that was um, a, a big draw for people. But the jewelry sale specifically was the highest sale total we've ever had in New York, which was about $95 million, um, which we sold in, I don't know, two hours. Uh, so it was yeah. very exciting, largely due to the fact that we had two very special stones. One was a 55.22 carat ruby, mm -hmm. the Estrella de Fura, which set the world record for the price of any ruby. Uh, and then we also sold a, the, the greatest color diamond I've ever seen which was a 10.57 carat fancy vivid purplish pink diamond, um, mm -hmm. the eternal pink, and also uh, set a world record for that color category for a purplish pink mm -hmm. diamond. And the ruby was around 35 million, I think? They both sold in excess of 30 million, uh, mm -hmm. which is what was what was expected and what's, what's correct. Uh, they really were both yeah. that special. These stones transcend jewelry, really. They become... 
uh, a trophy. They become an asset. They become um, a collectible that you know you you won't see them again. And um, yeah. the the pink diamond, the the color was just unbelievable. It just didn't mm-hmm. look real. And then the ruby, just its sheer size, no one had ever seen anything like it. So they were both very special yet very different stones. And it, it just I thought was great to present them in the same auction because they were. Um, they appealed to, to people in the same way, but then also they had very different audiences. And um, it yeah. was exciting to see them both bring such world record prices. Yeah, it's, it's one of those jewels that has its own Wikipedia page is, you know, very, very notable. Ah. It's crazy to me that, you know, you said 95 million for the whole week. Over two thirds of that was just those two those two jewels, which is is crazy. But I mean, I think you're right. It speaks to the fact that they go beyond just, you know, just jewelry. It's that you're into actual like world treasures at that point, you know? I mean, we call the, it's a, it's a treasure hunt all the time. And we, um, we're mm-hmm. very lucky to, to see what we see here. I say this all mm-hmm. the time. I loved my time in retail. Uh, but when you work for a retail brand, you're really representing that one brand. And for the most part, new collections. Um, Mm -hmm. here we see vintage pieces from every maker, every house, every style, every time period from, you know, late 18th century to the the present. And so it is the most, um, rapid turnover and kind of exciting, um, selection of property that you can imagine. We just, you know, we have the sale, everything is gone, um, or almost everything. We usually sell, you know, between 90 and 95% of the lots. And um, now we're on to the next and we start collecting for the fall season for September and and then Magnificent Jewels in December. So it's a very exciting process. So how do you, when you've got a huge, um, you know, you said you you expected that these two jewels were going to sell for, you know, a big amount and and that's correct and that's what they should sell for. Um, How how long does it take to kind of set up an auction like that? Like how far in advance did you know we were going to have these two jewels, we're going to sell them in the same the same auction, the same week. Um, does that take a, a lot of preparation or is it kind of the same as any other, you know, lot you'd sell? No, I mean, they, it usually is sort of a six to eight month um, time frame just because we offer the sales every six months. So um, the deadline for the June sale would have been, you know, the end of April. And then after that, we start collecting for the fall. So there's usually kind of a six to eight month runtime. We still do print catalogs. So we do have that print deadline a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you do have to take the months to balance a sale. You know, you, you kind of curate a sale, not just based on what comes to you, but what you go out and look for. You know, if you've already got two or three great sapphire rings, then you might have another one that you hold off on and wait till the next season. And you try to make sure that there's a nice mix of property. Uh, but when a stone like the ruby or the eternal pink comes along, that really is determined by the seller. They really are the, the ones who will say, well, we, we'd like to offer it at this time, or we want to hold off and offer it in December. And they may even have special um, uh, desire to sell it in another market. They may say, well, we'd prefer to sell it in the Geneva sale or Hong Kong. So um, that really, we work very closely with the consigners, and it's kind of a case-by-case basis. Yeah, it, it seems like a, a very fascinating world. And we've been talking about jewelry and, and high-end luxury. I think, I guess my last question that I wanted to ask you is just, where do you see, what are some of the currents you're you're sensing or feeling in this market right now? Do you do you imagine any big shakeups to, you know, high jewelry or anything in, in terms of your job or from the brands in the, in the next 12 months? 
I mean, for for Sotheby's, you know, knock on wood, we've we've really just been doing very well since COVID. I think we pivoted so quickly um, to, to doing things online, selling much higher value pieces online than had ever been sold before. And we not only continued our business, but we found a whole new world of buyers that I think, you know, were, I mean, everybody, we talk repeatedly about how everybody was sitting at home shopping on their iPads. But the reality is what came out of it for us was that we found people that maybe formerly had been intimidated by Sotheby's, that they thought, oh, well, we can only go there if we have a million dollars to spend. And we, you know, maybe the auctions or the previews aren't open to the public, which they are. So I think that is what's really changed things for us, uh, that we have found so many new buyers and uh, not just the the aspirational ones that I was speaking to earlier. Yes, we found a lot Mm -hmm. of people that are, you know, finding it very simple now to spend five, ten, twenty thousand dollars online which before maybe people weren't so comfortable doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. I do think it's, uh, it's interesting to note that when you go online or look at a print catalog at Sotheby's, but when you go online either way and you see the images and you read the condition reports and the details, it's, there's so much information there for you that I think people are now comfortable buying things sight unseen because it's all there. We really provide, honestly, far more information than, than a retailer does on their website. Uh, so I love that about us because a lot of the questions are already answered and we go into detail with, um, cataloging and condition reports. So I think that's, that's what's been happening for us. The strength of my market is still very much signed art deco jewels, especially by Cartier or Van Cleef and Arpels, great 1970s jewels, Bulgari from the seventies, still very, very hot. Um, but we're seeing some newer you know, newer pieces now, as I was describing earlier, that that kind of 20, 25 year life cycle of jewels when they come to auction, we're starting to see pieces now from contemporary houses. Hemmerly, uh, for one, is doing very well and one of the greatest contemporary jewelers in existence. And their pieces do very well at auction. We just sold some pieces from Dior High Jewelry um, by mm-hmm. Victoire de Castellan. Very well. This is a new thing. There's not a lot of not a lot of comps out there at auction for Dior jewels. So that's just starting. So I would say that's maybe an interesting development. That we are going to see some of these more fashion brand pieces coming to auction because those houses have been doing high jewelry now for maybe 20 years. I don't. Not mm-hmm. Chanel hasn't been doing it quite that long. Dior has. She's been doing high jewelry now for 25 years there. Mm-hmm. And and you mentioned earlier that or you know 25 years is about when you stuff starts to show up in Sotheby's anyway. So that that's so interesting. And um, I think that's actually, that's all the time we have for this episode. But Frank, it was so great to have you walk us through all the, the ins and outs of my you know, pleasure. jewelry. It's a really fascinating uh, sector. Um, for those of you listening, um, first of all, thank you for listening. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to, that, to this, that really helps us out a lot. Uh, and also you should subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because you'll hear interviews with industry insiders every Wednesday and every Friday we do the Week in Review, usually with me and my co-host Jill, but sometimes with special guests like Frank. Um, Frank, thanks again so much. My for pleasure, it was great. It really was great. Um, and once again, thanks for listening. Thanks.